0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Welcome to Unscrewed. The show that knows that real liberation includes sexual liberation. I am your host, Jacqueline Friedman, and I have a little housekeeping to do with y'all before we get into the main episode. You may have noticed, unscrutination, that this episode is a week and a day late. I am very sorry, and I know things have been a little irregular so far this season. And if I'm being totally off-honest with you, it's because I am a little irregular this season. I've had some health stuff going on and some travel and some general life stuff happening and I just have not been fully on top of it. But I think that I finally got my feet back under me and we should start moving forward with a little more momentum. So again, I really apologize. I strive to make sure that this is out on time every week when we are in season. I haven't been living up to that lately, but I'm going to get back on it. Also, I told you two weeks ago uh, in the Spare Parts episode that I had new events for April and May that were posted to my website and then I didn't post them. So I promise that by the time you're hearing this, they really are up on my website on the events page. But I will also tell you about them next week in Boston. I'm on a panel with members of the Globe Spotlight team, including Sasha Pfeiffer. Yes, that's Sasha Pfeiffer talking about how to teach young people about consent. Uh, It's going to be amazing. That is next Tuesday, the 10th. The week after that, on April 18th, I am in Corning, New York, at Card Carrying, an amazing feminist bookstore, doing a reading from and talk about Unscrewed. So if you are in the upstate region, come say hi. I love meeting you at events. And then in May, I'm in Dallas at the Women Galore Literary Festival. And I'm also so proud to be speaking at the pre-walk rally at the fundraising walk in Boston for Bark, Boston Area Rape Crisis. So if you're in Boston and you want to raise money to help support survivors and prevent sexual violence, check out Bark and sign up for the walk. And I will see you there as well. All the details are on my website. I promise they really are this time on the events page. And I love seeing your delightful faces at my events. All right. That's it for my yammering. Let's get to the main event. For this week's episode, I called up my pal, Saraya Shamali, who is the co-director of the Women's Media Center's Speech and Safety Project, and also the author of a book that's coming out soon that you are going to love called Rage Becomes Her, The Power of Women's Anger. I called her up because it's Sexual Assault Awareness Month, as you probably know, in April, and I thought it was time to take a little stock of where we are With Me Too and where we're going. Uh, So we started off, as we always do, with a lightning round. What has been making you happy this week?
0: Food has been making me happy. Ooh, what are you eating? I've been eating, last night, red snapper with black olives and black rice, which was delicious. Mm. And lots of mangoes that are ripe, which is sometimes hard to find. Yeah, I was going to say, where are you getting ripe mangoes these days? Honestly, wherever I can.
1: (laughs) You're a resourceful woman.
0: At least you can find them these days. When I first moved to the U.S., there like there were no mangoes. So it's a silly complaint, I guess, to say that they're not always ripe. But that's what's making me happy.
1: Delicious. Awesome. Yeah. What is some of the best sex advice you ever received?
0: I think probably it, w- it would be to verbalize what it is makes you happy. Yes. Yeah.
1: Easier said than done, but very good advice.
0: Easier said than done and um, probably not shared early enough, often enough with kids.
1: Yes, it would be easier done if it were yeah. shared a lot earlier and off- more often. Mm-hmm. What has been making you the maddest or saddest when it comes to the sexual culture lately? I mean, this is sort of going to be our whole conversation, but like, give us <laughs> um, give us a headline. <laughs>
0: yeah, I think it's a persistent framing of the debate with filled with false equivalences that we're all familiar with, right? Like suggesting that the incidents of rape and the incidents of false allegations are, Uh. that's that's like a big one.
1: Right, Betsy DeVos said that in her interview, like, oh, I don't know which one is probably bigger.
0: Who can say? Yeah, and it's so disappointing because this is not difficult and there's so many actual facts that can illuminate these things. But as we know, facts really are not at the heart of these problems. Mm Mm-hmm. What
1: is a myth about sex that you used to believe but don't believe anymore?
0: You know, honestly, I think that if I if I went far enough back, having grown up going to Catholic schools, um, it would be that men are more interested in sex than women. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty strong myth. You know,
1: I was really interested to find out when I was researching Unscrewed that it has not always been the myth that the myth has for centuries was the reverse, that women were sort of insatiable beasts that had to be controlled by men's coolness and rationality.
0: Yeah, they were, you know, walking danger because of their libidos. That's where we
1: got the vagina dentata.
0: Yeah, and and it was all tied to their inherent irrationality and emotionality and baseness and, yeah, all that stuff.
1: Yeah. And finally, who is one of the bravest people you can think of who's working to unscrew our sexual culture in one way or another?
0: Uh, It's really uh, hard to say one. I I think it's really brave when teenagers come forward and... um, can overcome the obstacles and shame associated with saying that they've been assaulted and to do it fearlessly there are a lot of them a lot a lot more of them today and i think that's because of the kind of work that you've been doing for so long but and, and not just sexual assault but i look at you know teenage kids who were involved in the black lives matters movement or the never again movement and they're really courageous i think
1: yeah absolutely all right. You are, I mean, Soraya, I have to say, knowing you well, you are a loquacious person. <laughs> and yet you somehow were like the most succinct of the lightning round that I, that I've ever, think I've ever done.
0: Well, that's actually good because as you, as you note, know, I just sometimes run on at the mouth. So I,
1: so I just I, want you to yeah. know that yeah. you, you killed it. You crushed it at the lightning round. <laughs> so now you can go on at length about... Um, so I I called you up because I just feel like so much has happened in the last six to eight months between Me Too and all of the quote unquote sex scandals of the Trump administration and ongoing conversations about porn which we did a whole episode on a couple of weeks ago and you know just there's an enormous amount of tumult in the sexual culture right now and I don't feel like I've been able to cover it here on the show as much as I would have liked to because I recorded a bunch of episodes in advance for last season because I was on book tour and then I was on hiatus so I just feel like it's time to get grounded like what the fuck is going on (laughs) which parts of it are do you think are good what's what what's the actual progress that's being made what's the the shit that's on fire that we really need to pay attention to and what's like the best direction to head in from here i know that's a giant conversation so where do you want to start
0: i'll start with an anecdote yes of what i think is good in the wake of the initial Weinstein revelations and then everything that followed. So maybe the first two months, right, where it became very obvious that this wasn't an issue that was just a Hollywood issue. As we know, it it cuts across every sector. There's nowhere that Me Too is not relevant for women because of the power structures. And and so one thing that I noted because I speak at schools often was that for the first time, really ever, uh, boys were coming up to me afterwards to ask questions and were lingering to have conversations, and I thought that was good. I thought, though, that the reasons why were ultimately bad. Maybe there was some empathy involved, but there was a lot more fear involved.
1: The boys understand that they may need to change their behavior, but they're mostly motivated by not wanting to get in trouble,
0: yes not motivated so much in caring for the person that they might be engaging with or in the larger issue of what this kind of harassment and abuse represents in terms of equality and inequality and so i think that even though i feel like woke is such an overused term but a lot of kids a lot of young boys and men are like you know i'm i'm woke i'm a feminist i understand but i really think there's such a big difference between being woke and being scared. And those two things right now are really overlapping.
1: Do you think that being scared could be a pathway to getting woke though? Like like a first step to sort of thinking about these issues is like, oh shit, I might get in trouble.
0: Yeah, actually, absolutely. I mean, honestly, what I've been saying is if this is what it takes, fine, but don't think those are the same things. Yeah. yeah I agree with you because at least people are asking questions and they are more willing to listen to answers that, you know, before they wouldn't have asked the questions and they definitely wouldn't have sat around listening to the answers. So, yes, I, I think that that's both good and bad, but it is a definite change. And I think I see a lot of that in, a, in adults too, both men and women, but particularly men, you know, who are coming to terms with the fact that this is happening around them um, and to people that they know. Um, which is disturbing, I think, for men who are not actively themselves engaged in this behavior.
1: Yeah. I do think that that the dynamic you're talking about is one of the ones where we're going to have the biggest work still to make a real turn, which is moving from... What I think of as a legalistic approach to thinking about sexual violation, even if these kids are thinking about their school's rules and not like criminal law, it's still a sort of rules-based, like, can I get in trouble for this model versus an ethical or moral basis, which is like, how can I be a good human when it comes to sexuality and not hurt anybody? You know, I was having a conversation with someone – very smart and interesting, what will remain nameless. She said to me, uh, and this is somebody who really knows what they're talking about. You know, like, do you, th- do you really think that the Aziz Ansari story was newsworthy given that it, you know, doesn't rise to the level of criminality and, right. you know, let's put a pin in whether or not it does. Um, right. Let's assume that assumption is correct. And, you know, and I said to her like, yes, because the criminal justice code is a terrible moral compass right like right right according to the criminal justice code in many states if a man is penetrating a woman and she asks him to stop he can quote-unquote finish right? right once he's already started and that's perfectly legal like the idea that our sex lives are fine as long as we're not in criminal trouble i found i find still very profoundly queasy making
0: Right. And and I think, too, what I hear a lot is this exactly what you point to, which is the idea that sex is transactional and that there are very clear black and white rules and that, they, you know, like they're kind of right now being systematized in these apps that people are oh. using. They can, you know, sign here and as though you can. Sign there, and then you can't withhold consent later on in the, in the evening, which is kind of kooky, right? Like this is just a disaster. Those apps have nothing to do with making sure people have better sex. Or, no, those apps or, are just to protect rapists. <laughs> like, yeah, right. Right. And and so those things are are kind of disturbing. And the Aziza Ansari case, I think, was a really important conversation for all of the reasons you say. Um, the the bar in that case was, but he didn't really rape her. And that's a ridiculous bar. It's a
1: ridiculous of... bar. And I heard the exact same argument last week on Twitter when I posted about Katy Perry and that non-consensual kiss on American Idol. And her fans sort of came at me and they were like, oh, so we should put her in jail? And I was like, what? Like, yeah. <laughs> you said, right. No, I, I didn't say we should put her in jail. I said, this is wrong and and you shouldn't do it, right? Like... This is not moral, but, but there's so, it's so hard to get the conversation past. Like if it's not illegal, then it doesn't matter.
0: Right. If it's not illegal. And also that bled into the question of bad sex, what does bad sex mean? Mm -hmm. And, and how differently men and women define bad sex and um, the degree to which for women, bad sex actually is pain. And, for men, it's maybe not reaching orgasm quickly enough, you know? And I can't remember the name. There, there was a fantastic article. Um,
1: oh, there was about this. Yeah, I think it was in The Week. I'll link to it in the show notes.
0: She really went into the degree to which male sexual pleasure is prioritized. And when a man and a woman are together alone in a room, it's very difficult, I think, for anybody to appreciate how much of the culture is in the room with them um but it is in the room with them yes and one of the most horrible examples of this that i discovered recently um which i thought was a thing long in the past but evidently is not is the husband stitch Did you and I talk about this? Uh, We
1: haven't talked about this, but I read about this also, I feel like in the last six months that I also did not know about. But why don't you talk about it? So if listeners don't know what it is, it's so horrifying.
0: It's horrifying, Uh, right? And so when women give birth, um, sometimes they have tearing or actually episiotomies and they have to have stitches put in to repair the damage done by this. And there's something that, used to be called and is still called the husband stitch, where doctors put in an extra stitch in order to make the vagina smaller, tighter, um, so that uh, whoever she engages in sex with will have a more pleasurable experience. And women often come to realize that this has happened only through years of painful post-birth sex. And that really sounds like something out of a Victorian sort of it's nightmare. It's
1: so horrifying. It's it's non-consensual, right? They just assume that this is a, a good thing. The doctor just does it. It, it right. also reminds me of what another thing I learned in my research for Unscrewed. I hate to keep name-dropping it, but it's like all oh. the research I did in the last two years. But that, like, a lot of women aren't informed when they're having... Uh, reconstructive surgery on their breasts, whether it's plastic surgery or after breast cancer, that they're, they may lose sensation in their that, nipples. That's right. They're only told about how the breasts will, that the breasts will feel natural to whoever's touching them. But right. there's no discussion whatsoever ahead of time that they may themselves lose sensation and pleasure.
0: That's right. And so that whole idea that your body is there to serve the pleasure of others
1: and the other is assumed to be a man.
0: And the other is always assumed to be a man and the sex always assumed to be penetrative. So we see that, for example, in teenage girls feeling tremendous pressure, not only to share nude pictures, but to engage in anal sex, which, you know, people often know very little about, are not prepared for, but feel pressure to participate in. So... You can't really separate something like the Aziz Ansari conversation from the overall culture in which all of these things exist and where male sexual entitlement is so pervasive.
1: Amen, sister. Yeah. So literally, as we were getting ready to record, you said that there's a new woman coming forward to say that she had an affair with Trump.
0: Yeah, and this is what's so so interesting about this. So she's an ex-Playboy model who um, actually, I think her story is very relevant to the Me Too, the developments in the Me Too movement because um, she's actually suing the National Enquirer for having bought her story and then oh, buried it. Oh,
1: she's the one who had her story bought by the National Enquirer. Yeah. Got right. it. I knew that she existed and yes. that she had, that, unbeknownst to her, that the Inquirer had bought her story so that they could silence her.
0: Right, and that's got a whole history of its own, the catch and kill, right? So they right. they kept getting these stories and killing them. Um, and so she's suing to to say, you know, this, this has to be released. I, I did not know about this practice when I sold the story. So can we talk a minute about the fact that these women coming forward like Harvey Weinstein's targets are kind of avatars of white femininity like the idealized beauties of American culture right
1: it's true and I think in part that's why they've managed to grab headlines right that
0: but I also think it's why uh, this is maybe gonna sound you know you can decide how this comes out but you know the the fact is that the thinner and wider and more prototypically beautiful a woman is, the more power accrues to the man who has her, humiliates her, has power over her in the United States, right? Sure. And I think that that was clear with Weinstein, who not only tended to focus, at least on the women who've come forward, to focus on that, but he also constructed that image in media by simply not hiring black women and women of color that much. You know, he simultaneously did this while constructing this ideal in our media. Like all of the men in news media that we know, were deeply corrupting in terms of their coverage of politics. And it just like every time one of these women, even Don Jr., like this affair that he apparently had, right? Oh, did he? Oh my God, yes. It's just you. Like she wrote a song about him. She was a oppressive... wait. I missed
1: all of this. I thought that was a sham divorce so they could put all the assets in Vanessa's name.
0: Oh no! You should see. So he, he had an affair apparently with a contestant on The Apprentice, and she wrote a song about him. What did the song say? Oh, her name's Aubrey O'Day, and she wrote. Oh, a song.
1: like from Tannity uh, Kane is? I don't know why I know yeah. that. Yeah.
0: Yes, that's right. And so, um, <gasps> she wrote. She wrote a song called DJT no oh yeah she wrote a song called dj Tea, when did the song come out i don't know anything about this. this yesterday yesterday or the day before
1: oh she just released the song no this song was released before
0: a long time ago oh my
1: god okay what is this song about
0: it's about his ending their affair maybe whatever the truth is defines the reality of you and i forever I believe that everything with me was a lie, a fantasy, and you want to go back and live the life that you had forever. Um, I mean, it's, you you just have to look at the lyrics. I hate me for loving you, hate you for letting our love die, is the chorus.
1: Oh, sweet summer child. I just literally don't have anything smart to say about that. I just, am like. It's literally just a shit show. It's just, it's just a shit show. (laughs) What do you think is the cure? Because I do think that there's something to the fact that that most of the women who are getting headlines, both in terms of coming forward about sleeping with Trump and also coming forward as victims in in the Me Too moment, are the these avatars of white, skinny, yeah. you know, normative beauty. I do worry about that. Accidentally or intentionally reinscribing those very values?
0: Well, I think, you know, Gabrielle Union talked about this really early on, and she said it's no mistake that this is happening, right? And so this is always the risk that the discriminatory systems reproduce themselves in these ways. And so I just think it's important that it has to be called out over and over and over again. And so You know, I think, for example, a lot of women in the Title IX movement know this, and they understand that as affluent young white women, they're in this particular place in the culture and that they need to speak openly about the fact that they look like the perfect victims versus people who, quote unquote, don't look like the perfect victims, right? That's important for them to do, but it doesn't erase the fact that they are where they are because of these dynamics. And it's sort of the corollary of missing white woman syndrome, right? Right. We know that's what it is. Honestly, the long-term result, I think, is we obviously, to the point of women action in the media and and all of this work, need more inclusivity and diversity in media so that we don't have these systems justifying... Right.
1: We need for the media not to be owned and controlled by the Harvey Weinsteins. Right. Which we're working on, but that's a slow process. Yeah. So... I do kind of want to talk about, like, next steps and and sort of future visions. And I'm haunted by this interview. Did you listen to Five Women, the This American Life show? Oh, my goodness. Obviously, you and I both know Deanna, and I I think she was so brave. For anyone who hasn't listened, just look up Five Women. It's a This American Life episode. Uh, It's related to Me Too, but it's, I think, the most feminist entry.
0: (laughs) It's amazing. The production is really amazing.
1: It was so... Beautifully done, and it's just so much about like how everything changes when you center women's lives and wi- mm-hmm. women as human beings. Right. But one of the things, so at the very end of the show, and it's about a case at Alternate, which is a lefty online magazine. For anyone who's unfamiliar with the case, um, one of the things that Khanna says at the end, which I knew, is that all the Alternate board, in, you know, investigated Don Hazen, the founder and former director. Uh, But the investigation never contacted anyone who he was, who he targeted. Right. Um, And they said, and, and she talked about this in a subsequent interview about that show. And they told her, the alternate people said, well, because he had already stepped down, like, they didn't think that there would be any point in talking to the women he had targeted because they couldn't fire him because he was already gone. And so they were just focused on making sure there was no sexual harassment happening in the present tense. Mm -hmm. And I felt like it's like the entire problem in a nutshell of what's missing from the Me Too conversation and where we haven't got to yet, which is moving to this system's conversation. So they saw the story as about don and because don was gone there was no more story instead if they had talked to the women he targeted who were in fact affected while they worked at alternate for don Mm -hmm. they could have come up with a story about how the system that is alternate failed them and how they could change the systems to ensure that no more dons can function there But their ability to envision it as a systems problem and not just a problem of one guy who, you know, either gets taken down or not. Um, I, I feel like that's the step we haven't got to yet, that these stories keep getting told about these individual men and that the investigation into, for example who made the decision that Matt Lauer should have a fucking button in his desk that locks the door to his office while he's sitting at his desk. Like, um, and even if that decision as has been reported was made for all the VIPs in the building, like who is in the room and why did no one say, Hey, that could be used in ne- it for nefarious purposes. Like how, right. how do those decisions get made? The, the systems level conversation, I feel like mostly still isn't happening.
0: I agree with you, but it never really does in mainstream media's coverage of gender-based violence of any kind, right? And so I think that those patterns are pretty well documented for mainstream media when they fall back on, you know, traditional journalistic standards, their approach is to take a decontextualizing he said, she said approach. The minute a woman and sex are involved, it is a knee-jerk response to get both sides of the issue. And that distills it down into these individual acts of bad faith um, in which a woman might be lying and a man might be misinterpreted and the theory of miscommunication is always applied. And if that's not applied, then the theory of alcohol consumption is applied. And it, as you say, never escalates up to the level where the media itself is creating public understanding of systemic issues.
1: So what do we do to get there from here? Tell me how we fix it. I want you to fix it, Soraya.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Honestly? Because mostly
1: all I do is, like, yell about it in public whenever I'm able to.
0: (laughs) Well, I I think that everything has to happen at once, right? You need organizations to start admitting that this is a systemic problem and then to assess the nature of the problem within their own culture because if there's one thing we know from decades of study is, is that in order to approach rape cultures, and I would categorize all of these things as rape cultures, there needs to be an assessment of the specific context in which it's taking place, and that might be a college campus, it might be a corporate environment, it might be a um, religious space, but in order for those places to really deal with what's happening at such a granular and intimate level, Everybody on the ground kind of needs to be involved. And it's interesting because I saw that especially, you know, in the recent U.S. gymnastics case, the clear implication of parents and teachers and coaches and trainers in that entire decades-long system of abuse. Um, So without getting all of those people involved, without having them acknowledge that this is a problem, I don't think there can be change from the top, which gets us back to the thing you and I always talk about at this point, which is how do we deal with early childhood education? How do we change these school cultures? Right. And not, I mean, the children are open to it. It's never the children that are the issue. It's always the adults that are the issue.
1: You were telling me something yesterday about self-defense classes for parents
0: well, it's, you know, we're coming up against, it's graduation, and um, in high schools across the country, schools are offering self-defense classes for girls, and these classes often cost $80, 90 $100 per kid, and I can't imagine that the parents of boys, some of them probably are not even aware that these classes are happening, right? Boys are not being offered self-defense classes, which is its own issue, But it's another one of those costs that girls are supposed to incur, not just the cost of the class, which is financial, but the cost of the knowledge that they have to sort of brace themselves for the impending danger that they face going to school, primarily with boys and men like the ones they've grown up with. Well,
1: also, like, yeah, it's also like the idea that suddenly they're going to be in danger from boys and men once they go to college is sort of laughable.
0: And to, to offer classes like that without having a conversation or many conversations over years, you know, you would hope that classes like that would actually not be necessary because I think they reinforce a lot of myths about rape, like a stranger is going to rape you.
1: I mean, it depends on the class. I used to teach self-defense. And so I, I have a slightly different perspective on this than I think a lot of feminists do. I used to teach for a program called Impact, which is found in a lot of cities around the, around the country and does not assume that stranger danger is the main danger and is actually a really great program, and I stand by it. I also I'm agree that really great. we shouldn't all need it. You know, my question when it comes to self-defense is, like, literally what is being taught? Yeah. If it's RAD or, or one of the sort of police-run programs, it's almost always junk, and that's sort of stranger danger assumption. But it also is, like, it's sort of like how I felt about feel about the idea of porn education, which I talked about at length in a previous episode this season, which is like porn literacy education is a great idea. But if, right. you, if you can't teach it as part of sex ed, like no good is going to come of it. Self-defense is a good tool, right? We should know that our bodies can work in our favor. But it has to happen in a context that supports women and girls' And teaches everybody of all genders that sex is not a competition, but a collaboration.
0: Right. You actually just made a point that I also think is important, though, which is a lot of the classes that I see these days, you know, go out of their way to say anybody can be a perpetrator, anybody can be a target of sexual harassment and violence. And that's true, but... There are very clear patterns in which some people have a greater propensity for both. It's generally pretty gendered, and we know that there are certain environments that result in a higher likelihood of sexual violence. So fraternity, athletic clubs. If you belong to a sorority, the rate, of, you know, the chances that you're assaulted are 40% higher. And I think that it does people a real disservice. To pretend that the status and power dynamics don't exist.
1: Yeah. I try to say both things. You know, when I do that kind of education, right. I like to say, like, look, everybody can be a perpetrator, everybody can be a victim, regardless of gender. And also, when we take a big picture look, like, this is it, there's a gender dynamic to sexual violence. And power dynamics are, can be gendered and also raced and all kinds of things. I think the best for me outcome is both messages come through.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I, I totally agree with you. And, But I think that sometimes that second message really doesn't come through, yeah. right? And that's a problem. It allows you to then, again, ignore the context in which the potential harassment and violence take place. Yes. And then
1: the narrative comes up. We take it right about back around to the Ansari story to sort of like, why wasn't she stronger and better able to leave? Right? Like it's just about like how girls have to be stronger and tougher on an individual girl level and i just my feminism is not about women growing thicker skins i just
0: find it appalling yeah and that conversation just completely erases factors like socialization and the fact that by the time some women are 18 they literally have been taught to always prioritize the needs of others to you know, not say no, to not show that they're angry, to be pleasing and pleasant. I mean, I don't think we can overstate that still, you know, I think that that's a real issue for women, particularly when it's coupled with even the slightest hint that there's a threat of violence. Yep.
1: And then men are given every benefit of the doubt, right? You must just not have understood she didn't say those this particular string of words. And so it's all cool.
0: And actually, the Yes Means Yes blog has some of the best writing I've seen um, about studies related to the theory of miscommunication. Because very clearly, men are able to read nonverbal clues.
1: Well, of course they are. They're not fucking idiots.
0: (laughs) Right. All all kinds of contexts. Yeah. And so, pretending that in this context, that, that ability somehow evaporates, like magically, is kind of stupid. Yeah.
1: So before I let you go. Yes. A, can you give listeners like some, some charge? Like what, what should we be looking for everybody to be doing going forward? And B, I want you to give a little preview of your book, which I of course will have you on when it comes out to talk about it at length, but I want to give folks a little teaser for it.
0: So, yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple of things that are useful for those of us who find ourselves in institutions or. Um, with people who seem genuinely to want to understand this problem and make change in their institutions or communities, and um, the first thing is this idea of assessment and buy-in. The just the acknowledgement that hey, we have a problem. Yes. B. What is the problem? Can we do, a, you know, a climate survey? Can we see how people are feeling? So that the people with decision-making power really need to consider what. The people that they are responsible for or working with are experiencing in a way that maybe they really didn't have to before.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And the third thing that I think is important is that people look at restorative and transformative and what's now being called kaleidoscopic justice because like victims of rape on campus, they don't necessarily want the perpetrator expelled. They would like the perpetrator to understand that what they did was wrong To acknowledge it, to apologize, and not to do it to other people. And I think our corporate environments need to understand that and um, learn how to institutionalize it.
1: Well, and I would add to that, and this is my little hobby horse that I ride every time I can, like, we need some better fucking research about what works, right? right? Like, what actually will accomplish that goal of, like, making the perpetrator understand the harm done you know, feel regret and and, act, and and accountability for it and not do it again. I feel like we have so we have a tiny little glimpses of what might work and we need so much more research into what is actually effective.
0: Right. And we know what doesn't work. We know that the standard kind of training that happens in corporations is it's it's really a legal, a legal hedge. But we know that when men are exposed to that kind of training, they actually double down. Yeah because they feel guilty by association right away, because everything is framed in terms of there are perpetrators and there are victims and all men are perpetrators and all women are victims. And that just automatically cuts off. Soraya, you sound
1: like maybe you're a little angry. Did you write a book about that? (laughs) I
0: I did write a book about that. And I ended up really laughing because I thought, is it possible to write a book about women's anger and not get really angry? (laughs) And my conclusion was no, (laughs) I think I, After doing this kind of work for so long, the the treatment of women's anger, the control of women's anger, the perception, stereotypes, everything uh, related to this emotion seemed increasingly important, Um, particularly if you consider that boys and men are taught almost nothing about other emotions, uh, but almost everything about this emotion as the masculine emotion. And girls and women are often cut off, so much so that they lose the ability to even recognize the physiological signs of anger in their bodies, um, which I found fascinating. Mm.
1: And yet when we manage to express anger, like in *In Me Too, we're told it's a witch hunt and we're a terrifying mob.
0: Yeah, that's yes. right. And those responses really actually, they did make me laugh. They were so predictable and stereotypical, this idea that angry women are dangerous that they're unhinged, that they're immoral, that they can't think straight, that, I mean, it just went on and on and on. And, you know, since I happened to be writing a book during that time, it was particularly useful fodder. I
1: bet so, I bet you were like, every day you were like, I'm taking that and I'm taking that. I it's hard to keep up, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do think that most of the time when men are r- ranting about women's anger, what they're actually saying is, I am terrified.
0: Well, you know, it is really interesting, right? And so many years ago, Gloria Steinem said that, you know, it's a real issue because when men see angry women, they cannot help but think of their mothers telling them what to do. They respond like they can't decouple the idea of women's anger from control of themselves.
1: Yeah. So I'm going to want to talk to you about this at great length when the book comes out. But when does the book come out?
0: It comes out in September, mid-September. Yay! And can people
1: pre-order it yet or not quite? Not-
0: Not quite yet. I'm not sure when that will happen, but hopefully soon.
1: But it is called "Rage Becomes Her," which is the most amazing title. I can't wait to read it and get really angry.
0: That's right. Just, just you're gonna have to pace yourself.
1: (laughs) No, I don't have to pace myself, (laughs) Soraya. I'm just gonna binge. Getting exhausted
0: before the end. I'm
1: gonna binge on anger. Right,
0: binge, binge. Yes, Uh, my anger
1: knows no boundaries.
0: Yeah, you know, it's so funny because I think people are gonna interpret it as my God, she's telling women to just like wig out and be enraged, which is really not the point of the book. It's really just you need to really think hard about this because when you don't, it literally becomes your body. It just becomes all of these pathologies. It becomes pain, Yeah, you know?
1: But think about the power of all of those women who are in touch with their anger and therefore no longer suffering that pain, right? Like think about how much more powerful we are when we don't internalize that shit. I love it. I'm so excited.
0: I love seeing these angry girls saying their piece. And, you know, I'm like, thank you, God. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for
1: coming on the show and uh, talking through every fucking thing.
0: Oh, my God. I know. And, you know, we're going to hang up and something else is going to happen right away. Immediately.
1: And we'll be texting about it. Where can people follow your work online so they can find out when the book is available on pre-order and all that good stuff?
0: Honestly, Twitter is probably a good place. So, at S-C-H-E-M-A-L-Y, Facebook. I have a website, which is myfirstnamelastname.com. But I, I think that you know, probably Facebook and Twitter are the best bets.
1: You're amazing on Twitter. You're so prolific. Um, so yeah, Soraya is an amazing follow on Twitter. Thank you. Yeah. And you can also follow me on Twitter, although I am much more sporadic on Twitter. <laughs> I'm at Jacqueline F J A C L Y N F. I'm on Instagram at Jacqueline Fable. And I also have a website at Jacqueline com. Friedman is F R I E D M A N. You can find out about all my upcoming live events and writing and, all kinds of stuff there, as well as the show notes for these and all of the past shows. Yeah. And you can find this podcast, Unscrewed, wherever you like to get your podcasts. If we're not on a platform that you like to listen on, let me know and I will try and get us listed there. While you are thinking of it, make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode and give us, you know, five stars, give us a little review on the platform of your choice. Really helps people find the show. Unscrewed is produced and edited by yours truly, Jacqueline Friedman. Our In-N-Out music is by The Pink Tiles, and our cover art is by Nicole DeDonna and was developed in collaboration with The Establishment, who also developed The Sound Cues. Until next week, I'm wishing you safe and happy sex lives.